Thanks, Philip. Well, as I said, we're <clears throat> concluding our series uh, this week uh, in Ezekiel. And <clears throat> isn't it true that endings can either make or break a story? Can't they? Think of a TV series, uh, think of a movie, think of a book. A bad ending is extremely frustrating. But a good ending is extremely satisfying. So let me ask you this. How would you bring the book of Ezekiel to a close? It's a rhetorical question. How would you bring the book of Ezekiel to a close? How would you tie all the threads of Ezekiel together? Ezekiel the priest is called to be a prophet to Israel in exile. And throughout his ministry, he receives uh, four dreamlike visions. And this is his final one and by far his longest one, from 40 to 48. But early, if you remember, in Ezekiel 8 to 11, he sees Jerusalem and the temple as, and is confronted by the systemic idolatry that was happening throughout it. And God says at that point, this is Ezekiel 8 verse 11, Son of man, he says, do you see what they're doing? The utterly detestable things Israelites are doing Things will drive me far from my sanctuary. And tragically, that vision, as we sort of uh, recalled before, does culminate in the glory of God slowly but surely leaving the temple and then the city. And then it goes and perches up on top of the Mount of Olives. And from there, the Lord watches. It was a very disorienting moment for Israel. Because it was the presence of God in their midst that made them who they were. Take that away and there was nothing left worth having. And their sense of loss would have been complete once they received the news that Jerusalem and the temple had indeed fallen. But then in Ezekiel 34 through 39, which is where we've been spending our time lately, God promises an astonishing restoration at all different levels. He will save his flock. He will restore his land. He will restore his honour. He will re resurrect his people and he guarantees he will protect them. And he makes these promises for who? For the sake of his holy name so that all will know that he is the sovereign Lord. But here's the thing. The lived experience, the lived experience of the Israelites in Babylon was still one of exile and loss, wasn't it? So how do you describe the life beyond the grief of loss, the bitterness of failure and defeat, and the shame of knowing that you have brought it all upon yourself? How do you describe life on the other side of the Lord's promise but not yet experienced victory? Was it worth hoping for? Was it worth hanging on for? Those are the sorts of questions that Ezekiel 42, 48 answer for us. And it is all about God reconciling his people to himself so that he may dwell with them forever. And Ezekiel uses categories and images familiar to the Israelites but the message, the message is one for God's people in all places at all times. What I'm going to do is I'm going to quickly summarise the message, uh, well, the, 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 the 
chapters 40 to 48, okay? Um, And then we're going to see how the New Testament uh, picks up what Ezekiel lays down. Now, you may have noticed that throughout Ezekiel, he has recorded dates, often actually. And therefore, we can actually go back and place Ezekiel on a bit of a timeline. And so the date that is mentioned in chapter 40, verse 1, means that this vision takes place in around 572 BC. It's been 25 years since the beginning of the exile. It's been 14 years since the destruction of Jerusalem in Ezekiel 33. And the entire vision is held together by a man who acts as Ezekiel's temple uh, tour guide. He's tour guide of this, of this new temple. And the tour climaxes with the Lord's return to the temple to live among his people. These verses are worth reading again. Verse uh, chapter 43, Then the man brought me to the gate facing east, and I saw the glory of the God of Israel coming from the east. His voice was like the roar of rushing waters, and the land was radiant with his glory. The vision I saw was like the vision I'd seen when he came to destroy the city and like the visions I'd seen by the Kabar River. And I fell face down. The glorious Lord entered the temple through the gate facing east. Then the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Now, this temple is described in chapters 42, 42. It's measured in chapters 42 to 42. But friends, the devil is not in the details. God is. The point is that God would once again dwell among his people and so it is shaped like the ancient tabernacle. It is shaped like Solomon's temple where the holy place is a perfect rectangle and the most holy place a perfect cube. In Ezekiel, the great hope is that God would dwell among his people again And it would be forever because actually in these chapters he also provides the means for dealing with their sin so that they will never be thrown out of the land of Israel again so that they can be together forever. And the life that follows is pictured in the river in chapter 47. This river, if you notice, at first it was just this trickle, wasn't it? It's this trickle but it turns into this grand river It's not a natural river and nor is its effect. For when this river flows into the sea, the salty sea, it makes it fresh. Normally when salty water, uh, salty water makes fresh water uh, salty. But here this water transforms the lifeless salty water of the Dead Sea into the river of the water of life. And wherever this river flows, everything will live. It is a picture of abundance and contentment. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow on both banks of the river. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail. Every month they will bear fruit because the water from the sanctuary flows to them. Their fruit will serve for food and their leaves for healing. Make note of that. Their leaves for healing. And the book ends with uh, the description of the distribution of the promised land, the equal distribution of the promised land among the 12 tribes of Israel with a city temple and this river, bam smack, in the middle of it. And the name of the city from that time on will be, here's my Hebrew for you, ready? Yahweh Shema. The Lord is there.
That is the wonderful note with which Ezekiel brings his book to a close. Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. Now, friends, that is how you describe. That is how you describe the life beyond the grief of loss and the bitterness of failure and defeat and the shame of knowing that you have brought it all upon yourself. That is how you describe life on the other side of the Lord's promised but not yet experienced victory. And it was worth hoping for. And it was worth hanging on for. Because it's a picture of God dwelling among his people forever. Well, there you have the whirlwind tour of Ezekiel 40 to 48. It was a little like a seven-day bus tour of the capitals of Europe. But there you have Ezekiel 42, 48. But here's the question. Where to from here? Where to from Ezekiel 40 to 48? I mean, where do we go? Well, the exiles do end up returning home. Uh, 30-odd years later in about 539 BC when Cyrus, king of Persia, conquers Babylon, he allows the exiles to go home, back to Judah, rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. But when they do, grown men weep. They weep. Because it fell so far short of the splendour of Solomon's temple. And there is no record anywhere that God's glory descended to dwell in that temple. Like it had, for example, in the tabernacle. Or like it had in Solomon's temple. Now, from here, we could probably go anywhere. You give me a book of the New Testament, and I reckon I could uh, explain how that writer or that book picks up this theme and runs with it, or at least mentions it. But we're going to this evening going to trace how just one writer in the New Testament picks uh, picks up what Ezekiel lays down and really does run with it, and that is the Apostle John. Uh, a quick shout-out, by the way, to uh, uh, Insight on a, on a Thursday. Uh, we have two sessions, Thursday morning and Thursday evening, and Ray has been taking us through the first little bit of the Gospel of John. And so if you, if you haven't been and you still want to be there, I'm sure you'll be welcome, but that has been really encouraging. Um, so, so keep coming to that. But in John's Gospel, what do we read? We read that the Word was God. And we read that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. Or literally, the Word became flesh and has tabernacled among us. That's interesting, isn't it? The glory of God that is pictured as returning to the temple in Ezekiel 43 came to dwell among his people in Jesus. What the temple was a sign of, he was in reality. He was Emmanuel. He was God with us. 
And then also in John, in John chapter 2, Jesus himself used the image of the temple when he was challenged uh, about his behaviour. When he, when he cleansed the temple, remember that moment in John chapter 2? And this is what he says. The Jews ask him, look, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do, to do all this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. They replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in just three days. But the temple he'd spoken of was his body. This is really important. Jesus would accomplish in himself everything to which the tabernacle and the Old Testament, uh, so the tabernacle and the temple of the Old Testament pointed to. And indeed, all that Ezekiel's vision of restoration implied. Now, John also wrote a couple of other books. He wrote uh, the final book of the Bible, Revelation. And Revelation 21 and 22 offers some profound reflections and refractions of Ezekiel 40 to 48. I'd love to spend more time here, but we're going to focus on some of the main uh, images that come up once again. So listen to this. I realise it's a little difficult to read, so I'm going to read it. So this comes from Revelation 21, 1 to 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. (coughs) He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. If you're relatively new to the Bible or Christianity, but even if you've been a Christian for a long time, it's important to understand that from Genesis to Revelation, from the garden to eternity, God's presence is the theme that unites the Bible And this here is a picture of the new earth as the dwelling place of God. So I take Ezekiel to have seen this in categories in which he and his audience could understand, while John describes its fulfilled version. In other words, John is given a vision of the same temple, but now from the vantage point of Christ's death and resurrection and the dawn of a new creation, something which, by the way, would have made no sense whatsoever to Ezekiel and his audience. Now, you may, you may read it differently and that's okay. In fact, I'd love to have a chat about that. But that is how I take it, particularly in the light of all that Jesus, uh, his person and his work, and particularly in the light of that vision that we have there in, in Revelation. But there is one big difference between Ezekiel's vision and Revelation's vision. Because in Revelation, actually, 
There is no temple. There is no temple. John, John writes, I, I did not see a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and its Lamb are the temple. No more temple. <coughs> Why? Because Ezekiel's temple was an image of a sign, like the temple before it, like the tabernacle before it, was a sign of God's dwelling among his people, the God whom heaven and earth could not contain, which the Old Testament acknowledges. The temple couldn't contain God. In fact, the temple included signs that conveyed the idea of distance. You had the holy place, the most holy place, and only certain people could go in at certain times, etc. But in Revelation was a sign... Is, is what the sign pointed to, is replaced by reality. Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. Ezekiel's river is also described in Revelation. 22 verses 1 to 3, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, <coughs> as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the land down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood the tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of the God and the, of the God and the Lamb of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him or serve him. There's no doubt here that this here is a picture of the river that we have in Ezekiel 47. But notice that its leaves are now not only for the healing of Israel, but also for the, for the nations. And so God's purpose is to draw a people to himself of every nation and of every tribe and of every people and of every tongue has been realised. And just as the river brought life to the Dead Sea, now it brings life to this new earth. The curse of Genesis 3 is reversed. Eden is restored. Paradise is regained. Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. And friends, isn't that where we want to be too? To be with God. Imagine that, right? At long, at long last. Seeing face to face God whom predestined you and called you and justified you and glorified you. Well, the reality is that one day we will. Look, God's dwelling places are now among the people and he will dwell with them. They'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Now, friends, that, that is how you describe the life beyond the grief of loss. That is how you describe the life beyond the bitterness of failure and defeat and sometimes the shame of knowing that we've brought all upon that, that upon ourselves. That is how you describe life on the other side of the Lord's promise but not experience victory. 
And friends, it is worth hoping for. And it's worth hanging on for. It's a good ending because it's so satisfying. (laughs) Yahweh Shema, the Lord is there. In fact, we've not had time this evening, but there are other parts of the New Testament that would say that actually we are the temple now that we have the Holy Spirit within us. And therefore, wherever his people are, the Lord is there. Because remember, he promises not just to be with us at the end of the age, but he promises to be with us to the very end of the age. We're the temple of the Holy Spirit and he promises to be with us wherever we are. But friends, whereas only faintly now we see him, with a darkening veil between, a better day is coming when his glory will be seen. And so the very last prayer of our series in Ezekiel will be, come, Lord Jesus, come. Let me pray for us now. Father God, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Ezekiel that has challenged us and has encouraged us. And we thank you for the vision this evening and the way in which you have secured our hope and have given us a a vision worth hoping for and a vision worth hanging on for the day when we will be united with you, where you will be our God and we will be your people and we will see you face to face. And so we pray, come Lord Jesus, come. Amen.